Uh, good evening everybody and welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Virtue Ethics. Um, I'm Simon Lendinning, I'm the Director of the Forum and I'm delighted uh, not only to welcome our speakers tonight but, but to introduce you to a new uh, event strand for the Forum. For many years we've uh, tried to draw some of our events into regular strands so that we keep our eye on covering themes and topics that we've been keen to uh, cover. But I've felt quite recently that one thing that slipped by the side in that effort has been an engagement with ethics. And in a way that reflected, I suppose, a, 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 a generation before my own, perhaps, a disappointment with ethics itself in philosophy. When, certainly when I was uh, a student, for the most part, the focus in, in what was going on in moral philosophy was about the logic of the language of uh, morals and the meaning of ethical statements. And there didn't seem to be much, as it were, practical reasoning about moral problems going on or something which was giving us a handle on what, uh, what being moral human beings might be about. There was another dimension to this which troubled me as a student, which was the a problem faced but faced in ethics, faced head on in ethics, but, but in some way uh, didn't seem to leave me in any better position with respect to it, which was that the, the status of propositions in morals, normally when people say something, we think that there's, as it were, the world that it's answerable to, the, the facts, the statements are answerable to the facts. And there seems to be this very difficulty in the moral domain, but the idea of moral facts looked really, really weird. And there didn't seem to be any plausible candidate for, a, so, as it were, a fact in the world independent of our judgments that made our value judgments right and wrong. As some, one writer put it in the 70s, it, it, it looks like statements about morals are not amenable to assessment in terms of being true or false in the way that um, factual statements are, non-moral statements. And so people would talk about there being among the assertability conditions of a moral proposition were not truth conditions. The assertability conditions could be discussed, but they didn't have truth conditions. And so then, then I just thought, that, well, that's just completely weird. What are, what, are, what are these statements that we make about, that seem to be about our world, and yet seem to have no reality that they were being answerable to? And I, I found that very difficult. And what I began to, when it became a theme in, in philosophy, what I began to like was the idea that what was, as it were, the tangible reality around morality wasn't some dubious domain of moral facts, but virtuous people. That that is, as it were, the reality that you can focus on, exploring what it is to be a virtuous person. Somebody who's generous and trustworthy, for example, rather than the opposite somebody with fellow feeling and how far that extends. And the connections between that kind of character and the possession of rationality. And so something deeply involved in being human. And here it seems to me we've got hold of something 
actually, of course, got hold again because virtue ethics went back a long way, but got hold again on something that seemed to me much more uh, intuitive as something, yes, this is, this is why there's a special domain of morality, because it's speaking about us as human beings and what it is to be a human being. And so the question of exploring the characteristics of the virtuous person seemed to me a route in to questions about morality that had something tractable to it. Well, the whole domain of morality seemed to have been slipping away a little bit in, uh, in the fore of European philosophy, and what, now we're bringing it back. We're going to have a strand, regular strand, on uh, ethics and ethics, called ethics matters. Sometimes we'll look at theories like virtue ethics, Sometimes we'll look at more practical problems and try to look at way different, ways different philosophical approaches might uh, explore them or, or attempt to understand them. Tonight, though, we're going to start with, as it were, not necessarily my favourite, but the one that, for me, brought ethics back to life uh, uh, when I was a student. And um, I'm so pleased that we have two people who are going to be able to bring it to life for you, at least I hope they are. Uh, Furthest away from me, Brad Hooker from the University of Reading, and close to me, Constantine Sandys uh, from Oxford Brooks. Um, Constantine used to be at the University of Reading, where Brad still is. Uh, I used to be at the University of Reading, uh, where Brad still is. So it's a bit of a reunion as well. Um, but so now they have uh, 50 minutes to an hour to explore this idea of virtue ethics with you, and then that will give another half an hour or so you to make, have questions and contributions after that. But for now, I'm going to hand over, this is Brad, are you opening up? To Brad, to, uh, to begin the conversation. Thanks. Simon, thank you very, very much for inviting me. I was honored and flattered uh, to get the invitation from you, and also I'm honored and flattered to be here at LSE. Um, this is a particularly good topic, uh, as Simon said, partly because it's hard, it's one that's hard to pin down. What, what actually is virtue ethics? We're, we're going to be exploring that in a second. But perhaps before getting into the problem of defining the, the view or theory or approach or whatever we want to call it, um, I should just give you a little bit of historical context, just a little bit. As I promised uh, Constantine eight sentences of historical context. So here are the eight sentences. Modern, many modern writers actually call themselves virtue ethicists or um, express a, a loyalty and affinity uh, for the view. Um, but actually, the term probably didn't come into existence until the 1980s. Um, so, you know, if you ask, um, was Aristotle a virtue ethicist? Then the answer is probably yes, but he didn't actually use that, that terminology. Um, but quite often the, the name of a theory comes along after the theory actually arrives. Um, so virtue ethics uh, was the predominant approach in the ancient world, Plato and Aristotle. Um, and then for a very long time a view called natural law ethics was uh, predominant. Um, Thomas Aquinas being the leading proponent. And then as you probably know, Utilitarianism grew up in the 17 and 1800s, and Kant was in the 1700s. And once utilitarianism and Kant came on the scene, they dominated things until, I don't know, 1970s or 80s, something like that. So you have this picture that once utilitarianism and Kant came up as the 
major opponents in what we're going to call virtue ethics didn't seem to be getting so much attention. Now, in the 1950s, Elizabeth Anscombe published a very influential paper called Modern Moral Philosophy, in which she complained about the contents, complained about the utilitarians, and seemed to be suggesting a different approach to moral philosophy. And almost all modern virtue ethicists take Anscombe as being um, immensely inspirational, if not actually letting out a blueprint. Now, I haven't told you what virtue ethics is yet. I've kind of put it in a historical setting, but I actually haven't told you what it is. Um, And actually, some I I should just be very clear right away that we need to distinguish between taking a big interest in the virtues, maybe even within a theory, taking a big interest in the virtues and thinking that you need a theory about the virtues, what makes them virtues, what to do when virtues conflict with one another, what exactly is the virtue of honesty or loyalty or kindness. Those are all good questions. And, but that's not, and sometimes that's called virtue theory. Sorry, sometimes that's called virtue ethics. So it's ethics concerned with virtue. There's a different thing which is called virtue ethics. And virtue ethics, as, I, as in my little story just a moment ago suggested, is often thought to be a rival of utilitarianism and Kantianism and contractualism and natural law theory and other approaches to ethics. So it, it, virtue ethics, as that term has is now used in uh, textbooks, for example, it is a distinct, at least family of theories, which are meant to be rivals to these other theories. Now, my own view is that the most interesting forms of virtue ethics are not very far away from the most interesting forms of some of the other theories, so that actually the contrast begins to fade when when we get to it, but we'll come back to those matters in a moment. Uh, Now, virtue ethics is often associated with um, some Aristotelian doctrines, um, which... It, it, it's very often associated with these Aristotelian doctrines, and actually, I guess I myself don't have tremendous respect for these Aristotelian, these particular <laughs> Aristotelian doctrines. So I'm going to say, look, people often talk about virtue ethics as if it's committed to a doctrine of the mean, but it's not really. As if it's committed to the view that you have to first figure out what's distinctively human, and then you have to somehow tie moral philosophy to what's distinctively human. And I don't, I'm, I'm going to confess I don't much have much respect for that view either. I'm going to say why in just a second. And then we get down to what the virtue ethics is really committed to, um, and it seems to me the central claim in virtue ethics that it's really committed to is an extremely interesting one, and it's definitely not obviously wrong. I'm not sure it's right, but it's definitely not obviously wrong. Okay, so the, doc, the problem with the doctrine of the mean. So people often say, oh, look, Aristotle advocated the doctrine of the mean, and that's perfectly good. We know that courage is between, on the one hand, rashness, and on the other hand, um, being overly timid, and, I don't know, um, generosity is between being profligate on the one side and being mean on the other. So, and you say, yeah, but in the case of some things, it doesn't seem that there are means between things. And, and I'm sure that you all, you all have had the experience of, of, of somebody saying, oh, you, know, you should compromise and, 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 and pick the mean. You say, well, that depends t- totally on what were picked as the two things which, which the mean is supposed to be between. So if somebody picks out a very unreasonable position, you might think, there's, actually, there's, there's no virtue in compromising with that unreasonable position by picking the mean between them. So, 
looks like that's not a very plausible picture. Here's what I don't like about the, and, and I think Constantine agrees with me about this, uh, about the distinctiveness claim. So suppose somebody comes along as Aristotle and says, look, what's distinctive of human beings is rationality. And so what we need to think of as the highest human good is the, the, the supreme development of those rational capacities. And ethics and somehow takes that as a foundational commitment and then builds up from there. Well, actually, I, I think, I, I entirely agree that rational capacities are immensely important. And as far as we know, um, on Earth, I'll be a little careful here but because of people's religious views, but as far as we know, on, on Earth at least, you think that the angels and God aren't on Earth, they're somewhere else. On Earth, the only beings with um, the ability to do complicated chains of reasoning are human beings. Admittedly, there's some kinds of rationality in, in some animals, but at least the higher kinds of rationality, the human beings are the only kind. But I have to confess, I think that's so what? <laughs> you know, if, we, if, if all of a sudden there's some being at the bottom of the sea that turns out to have the same rational capacities, does, what is that, you know, does that mean that all of a sudden, because it's not a distinctively human capacity anymore, that it's not so important? No. It, the fact that it's unique to human beings seems to be ultimately irrelevant. It's really good. It also happens to be unique to human beings. It, the important thing is it's really good. Actually, argue, some people say that there's some very bad things that are unique to human beings. Um, I mean, you know, we might argue about what the examples of that are, but that perhaps, perhaps there are some features of human beings that are unique and absolutely awful. Um, so uniqueness doesn't seem to be either, you know, in, it's just not relevant. Okay, so, so now we turn to the, uh, what's distinctive of, of um, virtue ethics as that term is technically meaning. And the virtue ethicist proposal is that what makes something morally right or wrong or permissible is its relation to what a virtuous agent would either do or not do or might do. So if the virtuous agent would do it, then it's right. If the virtuous agent wouldn't do it, then it's wrong. And if the virtuous agent might do it, then it's permissible. Might do it as in might or might not. So that, instead of first figuring out what actions are right, and then thinking the virtuous dispositions are the dispositions that someone would have, would enable them to do those right actions, we instead say we first pick out or try to understand which are the virtuous or vicious dispositions, and then we determine what's right by reference to those virtuous dispositions. The right act is one that someone with the virtuous dispositions would characteristically do. It's the usable formula. Um, perhaps I should just very briefly just just this is on the this is very in the very first paragraph of the handout. Perhaps I should just say this so it kind of takes it off the table. Uh, another point to take a little I mean, sometimes we use the terms virtues and vices to really just mean good and bad things. So people talk about the virtues of this kind of mobile phone versus that kind of mobile phone, the vices of that kind of hoover versus this kind of hoover, and so that really just mean the good things or the bad things about it. Really. But in the, in the in moral philosophy anyway, what we mean by virtues are desirable, settled dispositions of character. 
and vices are presumably something like undesirable settled dispositions of character. Um, okay, so it, so that's that's why the stress is uh, mentioned a moment ago on dispositions. Right now, here is what I'm saying. What seems to me really attractive about that approach, and then what's problematic about that approach, and then I'll shut up and let Constantine uh, correct me. Um, so here's what's really attractive about the approach. Suppose we do think, as I, I probably I think everybody in this room thinks, that kindness is a virtue, and that, and that kindness is a moral requirement. You are morally required to be kind. Not on every single occasion in life, but at least regularly. And you're morally required to be honest, and honesty is a virtue. So we have these two requirements and two virtues, honesty and kindness. Now, we all know that sometimes kindness and honesty conflict with one another. <laughs> so my mother asks me, how do I look? And the answer is, awful, <laughs> like you're about to die. Uh, but kindness pro prohibits me from saying, gee, mom, you know, that far away from death. Uh, I have to temper it. Like, well, so you look better. But I don't know. I mean, but anyway, I, I can't just tell her. You think kindness prohibits me from telling her the absolute truth, which is that she looks awful. Um, now, you think, okay, well, look, does, is it the case that honesty is always more important than kindness? No. Is it, always, is it the case that kindness is always more important than honesty? No. We, I, I presume we all, we all think that, really. We don't think that honesty is so important that in every circumstance you should tell the truth, even if it pushes someone to suicide. And on the other hand, we don't think that kindness is always so important that you should just go around telling people what they want to hear all the time. Right? Okay. But now, we try to say, well, okay, but where exactly is the balance? Exactly how much does someone's welfare have to matter before it's worth telling a lie? How important does a lie have to be before it's, it's too important a lie to tell, even when people uh, would benefit a lot from hearing it? Okay. But, so you've got these kind of variables going on, sort of the, the importance of a lie or, or a piece of truth, the amount of welfare, let's say, at stake for other people if you tell a lie or tell the truth. Got two variables going on, and it looks like it's not going to be plausible to come out with any precise specification. Not, perhaps not even not even not only not, not not plausible, not even possible to come out with a precise specification for exactly under what circumstances um, you should tell a lie or not for the sake of benefiting others. Um, I mean, you know, you could imagine an economist who came in here and tried to do a graph, and you'd just think, oh, yeah, but this is just artificial, uh, phony precision and abstraction. That, you know, we, really, it's not like that. React, moral reality isn't like that, is what, is, what, is what you think. Now, the virtue ethicist comes along and says, that's right, you can't, you know, there's a degree, degree of indeterminacy and vagueness and imprecision in the moral life. And you, you kind of perhaps you try to hide this from children for, to, to, when they're very little because otherwise it's too depressing. But at some point you say to them, yeah, look, it's just tough. You know, there are these competing things and you have to use judgment to decide which is more important. And, 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 and you think a, virtue, a virtuous person has
has good judgment, has wisdom, and, and can make the right bound decision about when, when one is more important than the other, the other is more important than one. And then, and then the, when the virtuous says, and the right action is the one that the virtuous agent would do, you say, well, yeah, that's about as that's about as precise as we can be, really. I know that's not. I know that doesn't sound very informative. It doesn't sound very helpful, maybe. But actually, anything more precise uh, and exact and specific is likely to be just implausible or even unrealistic. And I think that that thought that there's a sense in which we can't codify how to resolve moral conflicts between competing considerations or competing virtues. We can't codify the resolution of those conflicts into any determinate, um, limited set of rules or principles. But instead, we have to say something as vague as you have to use good judgment to decide which of these is more important than the other. Um, that thought is one that many moral philosophers, I think, seem driven to. And it's one that the virtue ethics position um, is central to the virtue of ethics, and that, that's what I think really makes the position attractive. Now, here's the difficulty, it seems to me, with the position. And let me just say, I'm cutting to the chase, if you see what I mean. Uh, so we have plenty of time for discussion. Cut, uh, there's lots of interesting things to talk about. Maybe they'll come back, but cutting to the chase. So here's, here's the problem with virtue so then you say, yeah, 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 okay, that sounds all good. Still, you owe us an account, you virtue ethicists, you owe us an account of what makes a disposition a virtue or vice. Most of us think nowadays, for example, that kindness is a virtue and honesty is a virtue, but that chastity is irrelevant. <laughs> right? Well, if you asked people, you know, 150 years ago about that, they would have, they certainly would have thought chastity was one of the most important virtues. Now, why, why is it that chastity, if it was a virtue 150 years ago, why was it and why is it not now? Or if it wasn't a virtue 150 years ago, why were they so wrong about it? Okay? Now that, that's a good question. And, and, and um, as different virtue ethicists actually give us somewhat different answers in reply to that question. Um, what makes something a virtue. Uh, and um, probably the most widely discussed answer nowadays is Rosalind Hursthouse's. Uh, Rosalind is a uh, New Zealander who now works in Auckland but was for a long time uh, at the Open University here in Britain, lived in Oxford. Uh, but but worked at the Open University and was a student of and well a student uh, of Philip Foot and um, Philip Foot was a great friend of Elizabeth Anscombe so there's a kind of a family story going on here but anyway Rosalind um, published a book called On Virtue Ethics in 1999 and that that's probably the most discussed now virtue ethics theory she put forward an account which actually goes back a bit to Aristotle, but also a bit to Hume, of what makes something a virtue. And she says, well, I'm going to, again, simplify a bit, uh, that something is a virtue if it benefits the individual and or the species. Individual and or the species. Now, the problem 
with the, laying focus on the individual. And she, she was, she explicitly admitted, she said, well, look, <laughs> honesty is a virtue, but um, what about in Nazi Germany? Was honesty a virtue in Nazi Germany? Well, you might, you're, you're, most of us would attempt to be saying yes. Well, did it benefit an individual to be honest in Nazi Germany? And the answer is probably no. I mean, unless they were Nazis. <laughs> but suppose they weren't Nazis. Suppose they were in Nazi Germany, but they weren't Nazis. They thought that this was all a, a, an abomin abomin abomination. <laughs> they thought this was absolutely awful, what was going on. Uh, but it wouldn't have benefited that individual to be honest about it. Because uh, the person probably brought one shot gas chamber. So she says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She says, okay, well, what I want to say is that virtues are beneficial to in, in are, virtues are beneficial to the individual in favorable circumstances. Um, then you think, well, wait a minute, does it? <laughs> favorable circumstances just are circumstances in which the virtues are regularly um, rewarded and the vices are punished? I mean, that that's, looks circular, really. Okay, so let, let, let me slightly set aside the benefit, beneficial to the individual and turn to beneficial to the species. So I, I think, and actually I, I think, you know, under pressure, Rosalind would admit this. The species just looks like too narrow. A, 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 why is it just the species? Why couldn't something be a virtue because it benefited some group other than the species? I mean, suppose, you know, again, suppose we, we find that the, the rational, this, this rational species at the bottom of the sea or the top of the mountain down some down some hole or on a foreign plant from a foreign plant. This is rational species. And there would be various dispositions in us that would benefit that species, but they're not human. Well, it surely could still count as virtue. The fact that it's not benefiting humans, it's benefiting some other species, doesn't seem to count against its being a virtue. Okay, so um, so it looks to me like you need to broaden out the, the, the group that matters from just our species to a broader group, not just our species. Um, how broad is a further question, but it, at least in principle it shouldn't just be at the border of our species. Um, as I say, it, interesting questions about how much further, but not just the border of our species. But once you do that, once you say, well, what makes something a virtue is that it, people's having dispositions of this kind benefits not just our species, but this broader group, and presumably this is an, an impartial assessment, then it looks like we're going in the direction of a kind of virtue utilitarianism, or rule utilitarianism. And um, since that's a view that I myself am particularly interested in, this seems not regrettable, but uh, <laughs> others might have different views. So I'm going to shut up and let Constantine take over. Thanks very much. Um, I can't stand for medical reasons, so this isn't kind of disrespect <laughs> to your Brad, so I'm, I'm going to sit down. Um, you've made so many points, I don't know where, where to start, and part of the trouble is I agree with quite a lot of them. Um, but maybe, um, so Brad started with these sort of worries about um, Aristotle's view of um, virtue ethics, and um, it still seems to be the most popular form of virtue ethics. So even though people like 
Um, Hume, who he briefly mentioned, also had um, something that might be called virtue ethics. Arguably, Nietzsche did as well. Most contemporary virtue ethicists seem to go back to, to Aristotle. And I think I'm in agreement with Brad on both the points. So one was about the mean, and the other was about whether rationality was a distinctive feature of um, human nature um, and whether it mattered whether it was or not. Um, but I thought I could add sort of a little bit of context to maybe make Aristotle's um, not sound completely sort of crazy or why would we even be tempted by such a view, um, though I don't want to defend it actually. Um, so w what happens um, in Aristotle is that w we have a, a view that um, probably neither of us agree with, but that Brad hasn't mentioned, which is that what's good for a thing is related to its function or something like that, to, um, where that might un be understood as um, an end or a, or, or a purpose. Um, and it's, it's sort of quite controversial um, what, how to understand function with things that aren't artifacts like the function of a knife, which you might think is to cut, where, in a sense, the designer gives it its function. And there's a lot of sort of controversy, um, think about debates over creationism or, um, or whatever, whether natural things have function. Um, and there's been a lot of work trying to show that Aristotle, in talking of function, isn't committed to creationism. So if you think the function of the heart is to pump blood, maybe there's a kind of naturalistic way of understanding that. Um, and so he starts by asking what's the function of all living things? Um, and it may be that um, plants can grow, for example. So what's good for a plant is to flourish. Um, um, but if plants don't have sensations and don't feel pleasure or pain, then it can't be good for them um, to feel pleasure or something like that. And so then you have the next, a wider group of living things. Um, well, then you have um, animals, um, and like um, plants, it's good for them to grow. Um, so non-human animals, um, it's good for them to sort of flourish and um, um, live maybe to, um, to a good age, but they also have sensations, so it's good for them to feel maybe pleasure and not to feel pain. This maybe sounds a bit too utilitarian, but so, um, but Aristotle, um, and I think here already Brad and I are probably not on Aristotle's side, but Aristotle had a fairly negative view of animals in that he thought none of them could reason um, at all. Um, some of his students sort of argued against him. Um, so rationality doesn't seem to be part of the function of a non-human animal. And then we get to humans, and they have sensations, and it's good for them to grow and flourish, but now part of what's good for them is to live in accordance with, with reason. And I guess he just doesn't sort of think of what about Martians or something like that. Um, but I don't know what he'd say if he came across an animal that could reason. Um, but, it's, but it looks like uh, if you've got this kind of view, then you might think, um, especially if you think virtues are things that, that must be good for the individual, if not the species, then, then you must think they must be tied to um, this function in this way. So, that, um, so that's where the stuff about rationality comes from. Um, but I think all these worries do arise. A, what if other things were turned out to be rational, whether they're um, some animals or whether they're kind of beings we've not discovered yet. 
Um, and then there's also the worry about what if there are distinctive aspects of human nature that, that are bad things. Um, and in relation to sort of how stable a virtue must be, I think one interesting question, and I'd be interested to hear what you think of it, one interesting question is whether human nature is itself something that can evolve, um, not as quickly as um, to, to solve the chastity case, but sort of um, um, over far longer periods of time. Um, so if, if our nature changes sort of biologically over very, very long periods of time, does that mean that what would be good for us and what would be a virtue would change. And I think that's possible. So this, and that's the sense in which I think there's something right in Aristotle, which is that as we change, what happens is our capacities and our limitations change over long periods of time. And that could influence um, what, would, what would be counted as a virtuous disposition. Um, so in that sense, I don't think he's completely wrong, but I do agree with, with Brad's criticism. Um, the, the, the mean, um, I mean, mean is maybe an unfortunate um, term because it sort of makes it sound like, um, you know, we, get, we have a zero and ten and with any kind of question, the answer is going to be five. And then it just looks completely implausible, um, like Brad suggested, that we should always um, be exactly in between zero and ten. Um, but I think it's not obvious that that's Aristotle's view. I mean, I don't think you were saying that was Aristotle's view, but it's... It, it, one might be tempted to, to think that initially. Um, and so the view is sort of slightly more plausible than, the, than that. Um, and so it could be that from one, and it relates to what Brad said was one of the virtues of virtue theory. So um, from one context to another, um, what counts as the, um, the right degree um, can shift. So if you take something like patience, for example, it might be that um, if you're waiting for um, to find out which university you get into, waiting a number of months um, is patient, and it's impatient to want to know um, half an hour after you fill in your application and put it in the post box or something. Whereas if you're waiting for the bus, maybe you know half an hour it starts being acceptable, or maybe earlier to to be impatient. So it looks like what counts as patient. Is, um, is going to really vary from one context to another. And what's nice with virtue theory is it, it, it doesn't say the patient amount to wait is this. I mean, that would be absurd for any kind of theory to say it's you know, 34 minutes or something, right? Uh, and maybe for some things it's years, and for other things it's, it's seconds. I mean, if I sort of stop talking, um, you know, maybe after 10 seconds, you might think, okay, how long are we, you know, going to wait half an hour, right? Um, so, um, so even though I think there's still a problem of how do we understand the mean? Um, how do we get to know what, um, what the mean is? Um, maybe part of the point relating to what Brad was saying was a good thing about virtue ethics is the very point that we can't codify it. So we can't come out with, with a kind of algorithm for, for calculating the mean because it will vary from one case to, to another. Um, and so that goes back to the thought, what, if virtue ethics is competing with these other theories, how can it guide us if it can't ever tell us um, you should never lie to, um, um, 
to use that, that example. So if some theories are saying you should never lie, or even they might say you should never lie unless X, Y, and Z, so they won't be so absurd as to not have you know, a few qualifications, um, but they'll say, you know, unless it's this kind of situation or that kind of situation, you shouldn't lie. And it looks like um, virtue ethics can't do that. So then the question is, can it have rules at all? And some people, when they write about virtue ethics, they make it sound like um, another, um, a more recent view called moral particularism, which denies that there are moral rules. Um, it doesn't deny moral truth, so it thinks there are truths about what we ought to do, but there are, there are no rules, so they can't be codified. So in one situation, lying may be a good thing, in another it may be a bad thing, in a third it may not matter either way. Um, but it seems to me virtue ethics does have rules, but they're not about actions. They're about um, character traits and dispositions. So it looks like the rules don't, they say be honest, not um, tell the truth. And that's, may, there's a, something, it may sound paradoxical, because you might kind of think, how can someone who lies be honest? Um, and then we can enter debates, you know, how many lies do you have to tell before you're not honest anymore? And again, we're not going to have a rule, right? It's not going to be 36. <laughs> and, you know, if you say th on the 37th lie, you're a dishonest person. Um, so it looks like, again, we can't codify it in, in relation to action. Um, but, but it does look like um, if we think of these things as dispositions, then maybe the honest disposition is to tell the truth in... Um, certain circumstances in the right circumstances so just like um, and in other ways the analogy breaks down very early but if you think something has an object has a fragile disposition it's not that it will break no matter what so if you drop it on a pillow it won't it break but if you drop it on marble it might so you might think that um, um, we're a bit like that. I mean, I don't want to suggest that actions come out quite as automatically as that. But it might be that the honest person is someone who um, tells the truth in certain circumstances, maybe the majority of circumstances, but maybe not in Nazi Germany, um, um, for example. Um, and, and so we, the view starts to sound like it does have a set of rules, and different virtue ethics will have different rules. So some will have be chaste, and um, some will, will, will have other ones. If you go back to sort of Homeric Greece, they all seem to be related to battle, for example. So that's another way in which the, these things have changed. Um, but it, it looks like the rules aren't about action. And so then I think, it's not that I think it's obvious that virtue ethics isn't a rival view. But I think it's an open question, and also the sense in which it's a rival view to deontology and consequentialism um, is also an interesting question to explore, because it looks like, um, on the face of it, deontology and consequentialism tell you, um, perform these actions, um, or perform those actions, and, then, and, and they have rival um, methods of how we get to um, which actions are permissible and which are obligatory, um, etc. Um, as Brad hinted, it may be, and sort of one of the best known moral philosophers alive today, Derek Parfit, recently tried to argue that when it comes 
to the best version of each of these view they converge. Um, so it may be that they end up prescribing exactly the same actions, but for different reasons. Um, so one question is, does it matter, um, does the reasons for which an action is deemed right, is, is that an important question? Um, but it also looks like th these views are in competition um, because they're views about w what to do. And it seems to me, and I think to Brad, that virtual ethics isn't about what to do. It's about what kind of person to, to be. And so it's not obviously in competition. Now, th there is this view, and it's particularly um, central to Rosalind Hurst's house, um, who Brad mentioned, which is that, uh, and she makes a big effort to say that virtual ethics is a rival view. And so the thought is what you ought to do is whatever the virtuous agent would do something. And so that's the kind of way in which it becomes a rival. But um, many critics of virtue ethics sort of think this is either kind of vacuous or maybe um, circular because you might think it's a bit like the kind of famous um, um, Euthyphro dilemma about whether God does things because they're right or whether they're right because God does them. You, you might start to wonder, well, sure, does the are they just right because the virtuous person would do it? Or shouldn't the virtuous person do them because that's the right thing? So there are those kind of um, worries creep in. And then there are, we can have discussions about other ways of tinkering with this. I know Simon said at the start, um, this preoccupation with sort of questions about language rather than ethics that we sort of um, <coughs> overcome. And I don't want to go back. Uh, I mean, I have some sympathies with some of these people. But um, one distinction made in sort of um, philosophy of, of language is between um, truth makers and truth conditions. So between what makes a sentence or proposition true and conditions um, uh, under which is it, it's true. Um, so um, to use the kind of favorite example, if you think snow is white, if and only if snow is white, there's a kind of, there was a kind of debate about is this, what is this? Is this just telling us conditions um, for a sentence being true? And so you might think that um, of course we ought to do whatever the, the virtuous agent would do, but it's not obvious that it follows that the reason why we ought to do it is because the virtuous agent would do it, that that's what makes it true. After all, it may be that the virtuous agent has his, her own reasons for why she would do it, and they may vary from context to context. So why should I do this? Maybe it's because it would be the kind thing to do. Maybe it's just because she's in pain or something like that. Um, so it looks like if these are the reasons um, to act, then what makes an action right should just be whatever reason in the context makes it right, rather than that the virtuous agent would do it. So I think that's an, an interesting um, qu question to explore, hopefully without talking about language um, 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 for, um, for too long. Um, and I think I'll just say one more thing and then may maybe see, um, see what Brad thinks. Um, the famous paper by Elizabeth Anscombe that, that Brad mentioned, um, part of, of what it was trying to do, other than say, oh, there's this stuff in Aristotle, um, which seems to have been ignored um, f for a long time, um, um, 
she was trying to do maybe too many things in that paper, uh, and that's a problem with the paper. Sometimes it sounds like what she wants to do is tell us we shouldn't use the word ought or obligation anymore, whereas a lot of virtue ethics since then is happy to use it. So that's, again, a question about did she think this was a rival view if it wasn't a view of what we ought to do, or, or at least a distinctively moral ought. Um, but something else she goes on about is that we need more moral, what she called moral psychology, and what um, is also sometimes called philosophy of action now. Now, moral psychology since then has become very empirical, and there are, there's a question mark as to is that what Anscombe had in mind, or whether what she had in mind was maybe more conceptual and, and to do with asking what is it to intend something. Um, and so she, she, she wanted to know if purpose and reason and intention and motive were crucial to ethics, then we need to ask questions about these very things. So almost like philosophy of psychology, something like that. Um, and I think, and that for her included philosophy of action. She's maybe most famous for a book called Intention about the relation of action to intention and whether they're completely separate entities. Um, but um, recently, and this isn't in Anscombe, but a lot of people influenced by Anscombe doing um, philosophy of action have come to distinguish between different things that we might call actions. Um, and one distinction might be between doing the right thing and acting rightly. Um, and you might think, well, what's the difference? Um, and um, the difference may lie in the reason or the motive or intention. So suppose the right thing to do is to give an X amount of money to a certain charity when you weigh everything, maybe even from a consequentialist point of view. Um, but suppose um, Brad does it for these consequentialist, maybe rule utilitarian reasons, um, and I do it to um, impress Simon, <laughs> right? Um, so, but we both do exactly the same thing. We give the the same amount of money to the same charity. It looks like, um, maybe from a consequentialist point of view, we've both done the right thing, but I've not acted rightly. And, and the thought that goes back to Anscombe is that my actions can be re-described. So my act of giving to the charity can be re-described as showing off, whereas Brad's can't. Um, so again, it might look like virtue ethics, if it's a theory of right action, it's a theory of not um, what the right thing to do is, but what it is to act rightly. And it's not, I guess it's just not obvious to me that deontology and consequentialism are theories about this. I'm not saying they're not, but that's another thing to explore. But I think I, I should shut up now. Can I just ask, yeah. push you both on one thing that's come up more than once now, though, the, uh, the threat of some kind of circularity that, you know, how are you going to define the virtuous person except in terms of the way they behave and, and, yeah. and the, yeah. what it is to behave well is to behave as a virtuous person behaves. Um, there's a circle worry there, and it would be nice to have a word on that, but also the other worry in relation to the virtuous person that you've raised is how do they think about judgment if they are already the virtuous person or meant to be? Do, do they have to refer to a more ideally virtuous person that they're in which to make sense of the virtues of their actions. So circularity and, and also the thinking of the virtuous person. Can I try this first question? Um, just because um, 
I think the way I think about it ties in with the very last thing I, I said. So, so it seems to me the secularity is worse if the view is about um, you should do the things that the virtuous agent would do. And that's precisely because it might not be virtuous to do these things if you do them with the wrong motive. So I think what virtue ethics is committed to is that it's not about, uh, it, it's about acting honestly. So in a sense, there isn't a thing you do that's honest. It's you're doing certain things that you can do them honestly or you can do them um, non-honestly. Maybe the very same, the very same thing. And, and so I think the, um, if virtue ethics, if there's truth, you know, at least an important degree of truth in virtue ethics, it's got to be that um, it says things like act honestly and then you need to know what honesty is to act honestly and the theory of honesty will have to be more basic in a sense than the theory of, of the right action. So, you, so in a sense you, you need the vir to understand what the virtues are to know what, um, how you should act. Even I was tempted to say to know what to do. Um, so in that sense I, I think it's, it's got to be that the virtue comes before the action. Um, whether that blocks the circularity, um, I don't know, but I, I think it suggests that a virtue ethics that says um, that this is really a theory about right action is going to have more trouble with, with circularity. But I, I don't know. So, right, so I... I Let, let, let me let just so that we're all on the same page, so to speak. Not only on the same page, but in the same paragraph and in the same sentence. Um, you can imagine a theory which said the right thing to do. Let's just take a, the simplest for the simplest theory, let's, or a simple theory. Suppose you had a theory, and the theory said the right thing to do is always to maximize impartial utility. And then the person said, "Okay, now." And then we start thinking, "Okay, now what should a moral agent be like?" Should the, our moral agent just be only focused on one thing, maximizing utility, and just go around trying to calculate the utilities of all the different possible things that she might do and then pick the one that maximizes utility? And you might think, as in fact Mill did and Sidgwick did and every other utilitarian has, that is, that would not maximize utility. The way for somebody to maximize utility is in fact to have settled dispositions to tell the truth, keep their hands off other people's property, keep their promises, etc. Now, admittedly, those settled dispositions and those things might sometimes need to be overridden because extreme circumstances arise. But in general, the way to actually choose the acts which will maximize utility, or at least not choose acts that will be grossly bad in terms of utility, is to have these settled dispositions. Now, on that utilitarian story I, I just told, you, you have an independent account of right action, and then the virtues, or these dispositions, are all really instruments to promoting utility, right? right that's, that is a model. Virtue ethics says, no, that's wrong. You can't first pick out which are the right actions and then make the virtues just instrumentalize, instruments to doing that. Instead, you have to go in exactly the opposite order. You have to first figure out what are the virtues. And in fact, the only specification we can give of right action is... The only true specification we can give of right action is that the acts are right if they're what a virtuous person would do. So if they, tell, if they stick to that story, then I don't think they're circular. 
because they've got an independent account of, of the virtues. Let's say the virtues are, for the sake of argument, um, settled dispositions of character that will promote the flourishing of intelligent species. How about that? Mm -hmm. Or sentient species, perhaps even broader. Um, or Okay, so you've got an account of what the virtues are, and then and then it's it, you're, you've got a quite vague and indeterminate and um, and you might think hard to apply view, but then the view would say and the and then actions are right if they what a virtuous person would do. Now, a virtuous person would presumably not only do the honest thing, but do the honest thing for the right reason. So tell the truth and not tell the truth to impress people, but because it's what honesty requires, right? So I, I'm absolutely with Constantine that that uh, in virtue ethics it's terribly important what motives the person acts from, not just what physical actions they do, but also the motives and in, indeed the character and what they, and the intention. Uh, that's absolutely right. So that, 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 I, that I left that out of my presentation. That was a fault. <laughs> absolutely, that, that, that's terribly important. Um, and I mean, I think we all can recognize that, that, uh, that that's right, that, that uh, we, we have much more confidence in and admiration for and uh, praise for someone who not only is honest and not only does honest things and kind things and um, just things, but also is motivated by the right considerations, not just showing off to other people or impressing other people or getting more clients or whatever, but the, the, right, the right considerations. Now, what exactly the right considerations are is slightly different matter. Uh, Simon asked a very good question, which is from the in, inside the virtuous agent's perspective, what comes up as salient, mm -hmm. right? So th that's terribly important. I mean, it's, it's, I, it, um, it's widely recognized, I think, that the, the virtuous person, I, by why I don't mean universally recognized, but I think widely recognized, that a virtuous person would often not think of the situation in virtue terms. Okay? And I mean, um, so, uh, so a, a kind person would think, she needs help, not, in order to be kind, I've got to help her. <laughs> so they're, they're thinking of it in, 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 you see what I mean? They're not, they're, not, they're not even using the concept of kindness in the thinking. It's, she needs help, help her. Not, in order to be kind, I've got to help her. Or in order to be fair, I've got to do this. Or in order to be honest, I've got to do that. But rather, it's the truth, I better tell it. <laughs> or it's my promise, I've got to keep it. Not, not in order to be a virtuous person, and <laughs> uh, I've got to do these things. Uh, that, that, that's the kind of, if I were thinking that way, then I really wouldn't be virtuous. I would be sort of concerned with my own moral status rather than the things I should be concerned with, which is, the promises I've made to others and other people's needs, etc. And I think th there is one exception to that um, often made, which is the ca in the case of justice. This is a point Bernard Williams uh, noted, that the virtuous, agent, the virtuous agent would actually, when thinking about justice, think about it in those terms. Justice requires, therefore I have to. Um, it, 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 it's very difficult to reconfigure that out so that you take the the, the virtue of justice out of the thinking of the virtuous agent. I mean, maybe Williams was right about that, maybe he was wrong. Most people have, have swallowed it and thought that, that that sounded right. The virtuous agent wouldn't think about situations in virtue terms, except in the case when justice comes into play. But in the case when honesty and, and kindness 
in other virtues come into play, then those wouldn't feature in their, in their thinking. So, so if, if the virtuous person from the inside is not thinking through things in terms of virtues, but yeah. in terms just of the... Let me, can I give you an example? Yeah. Well, so, you, just, yeah. just to finish it, um, where does the judgment of the, their being virtuous reside? So is, is it... How do uh, we good, identify the virtuous good, good, good question. So that's a good question. Right. So let me, let me give you, let me give you a, 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 an example which is meant to illustrate how this goes. So suppose that uh, Constantine, Simon, and I play a little round robin of squash. So we each play each other. And Simon is way better than the two of us. And Constantine is way better than I. Uh, and so Simon is now to be congratulated for slaughtering the two of us. Me worse than, than Constantine. But he's beaten us roundly, both of us. So now it's time to congratulate And Constantine goes up and thinks, gosh, Simon played really well. He, he just outfoxed us and, um, <laughs> and, out, and, and outperformed us in every respect. And, and he walks up and shakes Simon's hand. And he's thinking to himself, Simon deserves, Simon deserves congratulations for playing so well uh, and, and, and to be applauded for his acumen and, and prowess. Um, so he doesn't think about it as I, virtue requires that I do this. He just does it, thinking, perhaps thinking about what Simon's thinking about Simon's uh, talents and, and admirable qualities. That's what constitutes. Now Brad, on the other hand, is a sour son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. A sour son of a bitch, and he's thinking this is a son of a bitch. He's younger than I am, and fitter than I am, and, and he. Not even nice enough to give me a few points. Um, so I'm just seething with, with hostility. Uh, now, now you think, well, well, Brad, look, okay, so you don't have the kind of good nature to go over and congratulate Simon because he deserves it and because he played so well. In fact, you're not focusing on his good qualities. You're focusing on how mad you are at it, right? Right? So now what should I do? Well, it sounds like a virtue ethicist are committed to thinking that what I should do is go over and congratulate him, smiling as hard as I can and try to be nice. Right? Because that's because why? Well, even if I don't have this good nature in myself, I should at least try to pretend that I have a good nature. Okay. Now this raises an objection. People have often pointed out the virtue ethics, which I think is actually practically quite important, which is why I'm going on about it. It's not just a philosophical problem; it's actually a practical problem. So if I say to you, you should do as a virtuous agent would do, include, and you think, well, virtuous agents are temperate and kind, da, 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 and they, they're not bad tempered and they're not bad natured, and they and they're not jealous, and they're not greedy. Um, and maybe, uh, at least, I mean, I'm sure you all are much less than I am, but I am jealous and greedy and bad-natured and <laughs> bad-tempered and quite often. So, and if I tried to behave like a virtuous agent, what I would do is I would go over there thinking, I've got to shake his head, I've got to shake his hand, I've got to shake his hand, I've got to smash his head. <laughs> Out of rage, right? So people often say, against virtue ethics, look, for many of us anyway, if we try to behave like a virtuous agent, actually it will backfire because we don't have the good nature that's needed to do that. What we should instead do is say, okay, well, I can't do the best thing, which would be to shake his hands and, 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 and be nice, right? but I at least should keep away from him. So he's not in danger, in danger in this context. And that, that, that problem about, in a way, virtue ethics is committed to a kind of idealization of the agent and then tells you to behave like an ideal agent would behave. Well, if you are way far short of being an ideal agent, then maybe sometimes you shouldn't try to behave like an ideal agent should behave. You should try to do something else 
that in a way acknowledges your own weaknesses and incapacities and bad temper, like in my case. Very good. Okay, right. Now, hands are throwing up even before I've said you could put your hand up. Um, so, <laughs> goodness me. Lots. Uh, let's start there, and then we'll come over here. Yeah, please. <coughs> The question for me is that the definition, exact definition of virtuous person is a very step. Because we, for the fact that we are talking about something subjective, it's not objective. We are talking about morality. When it comes into practice, there are hundred different types of, types of definition and understanding of it. I believe what virtue ethics says is just gives us the word we just mentioned. Something ideal. Which, doing that is very good but nothing that is not horrible. Why I say this, I support my argument by saying that, just go back to your uh, example, what you said. You say it's a good thing to shake his hand. But my reason says no, because it defeats me. It's not good, why should I do that? And there are so many other things into it. My nature, my genetic, so many other, my psychology of my actions. So just by sitting here and saying that, no, it's good to shake his hand, it doesn't resolve the issue, I think. It's good if I could have done that, but it's not horrible if I don't. Okay, Brad, so part, part of the point here is that perhaps the virtue ethicist it can be flexible enough with your later objective. Yeah, maybe, maybe they can. Maybe, I mean, I just, just complete my question. Is, that, is it right to say that virtue ethicist is a person who always refers to as a reason? Is this the right answer to this? So always reason. To use just finger as a rational uh -huh. Is Would it be a solution? Right, that's, that's good. So, Brad, your flexible, your flexible virtue ethicist who, who keeps away from me rather than coming up yeah. is, is remaining, as it were, in a A rational agent, yeah. Remain, because yeah. yeah. Rational agent. And then go back to the first point you said, okay, human beings are rational, so what? Yes, yeah, so what? Because we can yeah. make a judgment according to the situation. And that would make me a virtuous person. Okay, right. Great. So, Thank can, you. can I just, I, I think the way virtue ethicists have responded to the problem of this, the tennis racket, I mean, the, the squash racket, came from Gary Watson. Uh, anyway, that, that example came from a, a philosopher named Gary Watson. The way they've responded to it is precisely to try to be flexible and say, well, the ideal thing to do would be to, with a good nature, walk up and shake his hands. But the second best thing to do for people who don't have a good nature is, in fact, to think, ah, I better not tr do that, but instead, but instead stay away. So they, they, in effect, they want to have a kind of, here's, here's the right action for somebody who really did have the right dispositions to do, and here's the right action for somebody who realizes that they're imperfect in various ways and, and perhaps doesn't have the capacity to. Mm -hmm. to and it led to, um, I, it was popular for a while, I don't know what it states as sort of now, but what was called the advice model. Exactly. So yeah. people thought you shouldn't do what the virtuous agent would do, but what the virtuous agent would advise you or, or me with all my vices but the thing to is do. That, that virtuous person, who is that virtuous person? You can't give it Well, vision. okay, we've got that problem, okay. but that's a, that, is a, that is an interesting variation to, to build your flexibility in by looking for that yeah. advice. So we were, we were over here, I think it was you. Okay, uh, one thing that seems to me self-evident about the virtues is that virtues are social constructs, right? You, you mentioned chastity being a virtue 200 years ago, you know, military courage in Greece, etc. So basically it seems to me that virtue is basically a social projection of desirable behavior. Uh, it's a sort of a social expectation, what society expects us to do. You know, Greeks were expected to be courageous, 
good Christians were expected to not have sex uh, outside marriage, etc., etc. And if we grant this, it would basically whole virtue ethics would turn out to be good is what society considers to be good. Yeah, okay, hold, uh, on, hold on, uh, I, hold on. I, I, don't, I, 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 I think in your very first sentence you said something which I really don't agree with. And that is that what's virtuous is what society thinks is virtuous. And uh, let me just give you a little, a little autobiography. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up, as you can tell, in the United States. Can you tell what part of the United States I grew up in? Yeah. The southern part of the United States, <laughs> which really was a, a society with absolutely vicious racism and vicious homophobia and actually vicious misogyny. So in that society that I grew up in, being racist was widely considered to be, in the society I grew up in, being racist was widely considered to be permissible, at least maybe even obligatory. The fact that it was considered good didn't make it good. In fact, it was terrible. So just consider somebody in, in the 1960s, in Alabama in the 1960s, who was in fact um, not racist, absolutely, t I mean, in the way that many people nowadays aren't racist at all, not racist at all, not homophobic at all, not misogynist at all. That person had a set of dispositions which were unpopular in the society, widely condemned in the society, in fact, even could have got them lynched in the society, but they were still virtues. Whether something is a virtue does not depend entirely on perhaps not even crucially, on the attitudes of the society. It's got to depend on something else. Because we all know the attitudes of society can be just as bad as imaginable. But your own one of your own objections was the sort of transience of the, of the virtue. Of, of people's views. Of people's views. Of people's views about the virtues. Yeah, I mean, and you, might, you might say, and this is very possible, you might say in the case of chastity that actually there has been not just a change in view, but a change in circumstances, because there was there was pre -con, pre contraception and then post contraception, or not post contraception, mm -hmm. but pre pre contraception and post the invention of contraception, and that chastity changed status and went from virtue to non-virtue, or not not virtue to irrelevance by the invention of, of contraception. I mean, you could take that view. Yeah. Many people, I think, would. But that but but the crucial thing is. The crucial thing, in my view, is that if you, told, if you told that story, if you thought that chastity was a virtue when contraception was impossible, um, and chastity was no longer a virtue once contraception was widely available, but look, there was a difference. Contraception became widely available when? In the 30s? Isn't that right? In the 1930s in, in, in England? I think that's right. You all don't even know. Okay. <laughs> I think it became available. I think it became. It, became, it started to become available pre World War One, but it, it did become widely available in the 1930s and even more. I mean, of course, more. so. But there was a long lag in attitudes between when it became available and when chastity was no longer considered uh, a virtue. So I, my view is, even if you told this story according to which chastity was a virtue when there wasn't contraception, but as soon as contraception became widely available, it was no longer a virtue, you'd, you'd then say, yeah, but social attitudes didn't change until roughly the 60s. See what I mean? Okay, so I, I think you've got to be very careful about what people's attitudes are and what really, wh whether something really was a virtue or not. Okay, yeah. someone towards the back. Uh, yeah. Um, I just wanted to pick up on this point. It's more of a question for Brad. Uh, Discuss it already, but um, I think if you did think that virtuosity was a distinct category, um, I think one of a virtuosity might first respond by saying this kind of partner requirement response, which is probably one of the boring responses. But it's kind of if we think that 
virtue um, is you know sensitive to context in some ways, so time, um, I think culture or other social circumstances. Um, is this, this objection could easily have a, a, a utilitarian? Well, hold, hold on. I didn't mean that as an objection. Okay. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean to object. All I was doing was rejecting the view that you could plausibly say that virtue and vice is just conventional or dependent on, soci I mean, it's a sociological fact about, about social attitudes. Right. I, I, all you have to do is look at a really bad society right. and say, no, you don't want to say that it's a virtue to be racist or a virtue to be sure. anti-Semitic, et cetera. But yeah. My point is that if you, know, if you could say that about that, then we could also say that these attitudes could possibly extend to ideas about what I think I, I think I might perhaps I, I didn't I, I obviously I didn't um, express myself very well. What I mean I, I don't think I've come up with a decisive objection to virtue ethics. I, I don't think I've come up with one. I certainly don't think I've expressed one today. I've, I've just all I meant to do is say, look, here are some possible objections. You might think these possible objections are quite strong. The, the objection that I was most focused on was the one that we need an account of what makes things virtues and vices. And I, I, I can't say, I mean, I can't say how virtue ethicists can plausibly deny that. They have to come up with an account of why, why these things are virtues and those things are vices. But once they do, it's not so clear that there's that big a difference between that view and, and, and some other views. But th that, wasn't meant to be a, that wasn't meant to be hostility to them. It was meant to be as Constantine suggested, convergence, yeah. Okay, over there. Right, so a, a, a related question. If you, if, if you are going to acknowledge any kind of transience in what socially gets acknowledged as a virtue, how are you going to get hold of any content whatsoever of a, a sort of socially in, social independent value of, uh, of the virtue, of the virtuous? So I, I thought that was, not that it's the right view, but that was what was attractive in, in Aristotle was that it did it sort of, I guess, biologically rather than sociologically. So it said, let's look at, at, at human nature. Um, let's see what's good for us, say, from, um, um, for, for our nature, not from a sort of social point of view, but from a um, biological point, point of view. Now that might be the wrong... Let's through that a little bit, because uh, I think it is a very important point, and, and because although you're talking about biology, the biology here is the biology of a rational animal. Yes, right? And so what right. we're talking about, first of all, is the human as an inherently rational creature. And we're often, in, in the history of humanity, have not been uh, flourishing as rational creatures. We've got these rational capacities, but they're, they're potentials only. 
And so what you're looking at is the possibility of a way of living for the human in which these flourish. Yeah. And the, just as you have flowers which their as it right. were, telos is to flourish, so for a human being, its end, its purpose is to flourish. To go from potentiality to actuality. To actua act actuality. Uh, now, does that answer the question? If we, if when, when what's in view there is is the potential flourishing of the human in its nature, which is as a rational creature, uh, to, to, to hold off a worry that the, the sense of virtue at any time is going to be the only thing you can refer to to make sense of virtue at all. I think it does, because you've got an idea of the rational, but do you have any... You don't have a non-historical idea of the rational, so... How, how, do, how do you, do you just have to become a Platonist of some sort? There is this sort of ideal out there of what, what the ideally rational person would be, and so now we know what the ideally virtuous life would be. So I thought, I thought that at least for Aristotle, the thought is that the rational thing to do will be the thing um, that turns out to be good for you um, in this sort of semi-biological sense right. so for example um, um, and, um, and this won't just include moral things so, so for example um, if, you'd, um, if it's, it's prudent to brush your teeth because otherwise your, your teeth will rot for example so that's not a sort of sociological thing it's not because other people will avoid you and you don't want that it's, no. that it's, it's bad for you, you to have rotten teeth mm. independently of what right people think. I don't know if that... I don't know. So do you, do you, do you, do you question, it was your question, I'd rather took it over, but uh, do, does a reference to, as it were, like something like your nature as a human being begin to answer it? Like, if, if you live in a society where racism is seen as a virtue, even if it's not a natural virtue, you're seeing it as one. So whoa, 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 whoa. I lived in a society in which Many people thought racism was a virtue. I never thought it was a virtue. Okay, you didn't, but other people would have. They, so, might, they might have seen the ideal person as, uh, as well, the virtuous person as racist. Right, so they tie their idea of the good. No, 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 no look, it's. Sorry? Sorry? Can you reference a virtuous person if you're a virtuous person? I think the point that's coming across is. If you're a virtuous, if you're a virtue ethicist, but have the wrong theory of the virtues, you might be a terrible person, even if you completely do yeah. what you yeah, what true. the virtue ethic. But that would be true of consequentialism that's, that's, as yeah. well. So if you think you should maximise the good, but you've got a wrong view of what goodness is, um, then so it's a very kind of parallel. Yes, but in this case, you've got you've tied your idea of what the good is to what a virtuous person does, and you've got no further court of appeal, as it were. And if you're in a society... Whoa, 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 hold on. Suppose, suppose I'm in a society. I mean, th this, was, you know, this was true in the fairly recent... Method. Suppose we're in a society and we agree that... You, you know, we agree... But we're in a big... We agree that um, the welfare of homosexuals matters as much as the welfare of heterosexuals. But the society in which we live does not think that's true. They think that homosexuals are inherently less important and valuable than heterosexuals. And therefore, things should be arranged uh, to be as, so as to benefit heterosexuals, not homosexuals. Okay? But, but, but we just think they're mistaken about that. 
So our conception of, vert, of virtues, we're assuming, our conception of virtues is that in fact uh, no distinction should be made between homosexuals and heterosexuals. But we accept that we are a minority in a society in which other people don't share our views, and we might be kept for a for these views. We think our view is in better shape than theirs, yeah. right? Yeah, and, exactly. And I think all the worries about how, how does a virtue ethicist give any sort of um, content to the idea of one view being in better shape than another? Because, because so all you've right. got to yeah, no, 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 that, that, that's right. So, so uh, fair enough. So, suppose that the answer is that I say, well, look, a society in which there's toler tolerance for people with different gender preferences, uh, a society in which there's tolerance for that is going to be a better society, one where people flourish more, than a society in which there's a discrimination and oppression. And I, I accept that people disagree with me about that, but you know, <laughs> we disagree about lots of things. Well, that's why that's why yeah, that's why I think that when you start when you, it's very tempting, it's very very tempting to try to assess what things count as virtues and vices in a consequentialist way. All right, we've got loads of questions. One here, then one at the back, and then one down here. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the Simon's question, and when we go to the flexibility example, and I was thinking that it, it was all about what the judgment meant. Now, for the flexible example, it looked as if it meant something more like a rationale, something a conception under which my doing X would actually make sense. But then we'd sort of lose the, the, the virtues in a way because we could have conceptions or like uh, we could act for reasons that actually make sense and that of which are actually make sense, but there may not be. Uh, the ones we're looking for. So I was just trying to understand a bit more. So what I understand is good judgment here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what you can't do is say the good judgment is it's good because it gets the right answer. Because on the, we can't say that if we're virtue ethicists because the right answer is determined by it's the good judgment. All <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, Was the, was the worry about um, the content of the good judgment or just what well, it, it is be, to be a good judge? Well, it could be a rationale, yes? So you could provide a rationale, a conception of which my doing X would actually make sense. But that seems to separate, uh, separate us from uh, what we were thinking as virtues because it could make sense as a conception for me to do something actually is not virtuous, so we sort of like end up in a problem. Well, it, so here, here's, here's why I think the virtue ethics is not in quite such a bad state about that. So suppose we've got, we've got three cases, and in, in the first case, kindness is more important than honesty. In the second case, um, they're dead equal, and in the third, whatever that means, and in the third case, uh, honesty is more important than kindness. Right? And suppose that Constantine is in the, faces these three cases, and in the first case he decides in favor of this, and the second case he decides, well, it's, it, they're equally important, and in the third case he decides in the other one. And then you ask, um, okay, Constantine, can you provide a rationale? And I, I take it that the virtue ethicists, and indeed uh, theorists of, uh, of other kinds, but I have to say 
actually, the only rationale I can provide you is that it seemed to me that in this case, this consideration was more important than that one. In this case, they were equal or roughly equal, and in that, in this case, it's the other way around. The, 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 this one. But they, that's I all don't know. I mean, say. they could say they could give further reasons about why it seemed so in one case rather than the other. So you might think, you might say. Um, you know, my mother is particularly sensitive, yeah, whereas right. yours isn't. So, yeah. so I mean, it's not yeah. just that you say, "Oh, in this case, it just seemed yeah, to no, me." That's right. that's so you, you point to a further fact, yeah. but what will be tricky is to, if someone keeps asking, "Why did this further fact make the difference?" At some point, I suppose you you're going to want to think it's self-evident. So if the person doesn't understand why being sensitive was a, rele a relevant feature. I'm sounding like a particular person. <laughs> but it, uh, um, so at some point, you'll, you'll hit a kind, kind of rock bottom. But I think you can point to further features. What, you, what I meant to be suggesting is that you're not providing a principle. Yeah, you're not providing like, a principle. You're providing but you're not just appealing to, it seemed to me yeah. um, to, be, to be right. You're appealing to a consideration which mattered. OK, right up at the back. And it's there. If when discussing virtues a great deal is yes but, is there such a thing as a final arbiter? A final arbiter of? In the sense of who or what makes the final decision. On what is or isn't virtuous. Um, uh, no, I think, I, I guess I would say there is no, in ethics generally, there's no final arbiter in the sense of, a, of, a, of an agent with authority. Can I just say something, because this sort of question is a kind of clearer version of something that's been coming from other people as well, and it sounds like an objection to virtue ethics. But in fact, it was one of the key claims in that Anscombe paper. So when we briefly mentioned that she thought there was no such thing as a moral ought, um, she, gave, she gives this, it's, it's, it's ironically almost Nietzschean, but she gives this kind of very quick history of the concept of ought. And she basically says that um, if you, um, you, you can have ought in religion because you've got God, um, so the obligation, you know, um, you've got the final arbiter. And you can have ought, um, say, um, in a monarchy if, if the king is going to chop your head off, if you don't. So that there's a power that, where, where the ought is coming from. And then she, she thought that secular ethics wasn't entitled. Um, and so she thought we'd inherited this concept of ought from these sort of um, um, Judeo-Christian, ultimately legalistic, but then religious kind of models. And then we sort of brushed that away and said, this isn't about um, man's law or God's law, it's about the moral law. And, and she thought that that notion of a distinct moral ought was, I guess, bankrupt. My, my, my question wasn't supposed to dismiss it, but it was actually quite... Oh, okay, it, so you... It was just the idea that it, it does seem relative, doesn't it, in if you don't have a moral ought, everything becomes relative. Well, no, the thought is that you, you have an ought that... Um, I, I mean, that will depend on, from one virtue theory to another, an ought that's either tied to um, human nature or animal nature. I mean, Hume's version of... of of the ought isn't about rationality, but about sentiments that, that we share with 
other animals even um, but it won't be a kind of moral law does that kind of I mean, I guess I, 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 I do think that the, the relationship between ethics and law is fascinating. And, uh, and I, I conf, con, confess I often think of ethics as much like law, roughly has the same purpose, etc. But there's this huge difference. It's plausible in the case of law to think that there's a final authority, the Supreme Court, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, there's a final authority. And what the final authority says is it. That just isn't the, the case in ethics, and nor is it the case in philosophy generally. I mean, on metaphysical questions or epistemological questions or logical questions, there is no, there is no. The chair is the final. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I think, but it, although you wanted to praise it, I don't think you were praising it in the same terms because you also wanted it to push back onto this idea of a, of a relativity of, of, of the virtues, that in different societies or different people have these different judgments of, of virtue. And I think both of you have been trying to resist. resist that movement from a sense of the absence of the moral authority to a slide right down and saying, well, then anything goes, you know, whatever anybody says at some time is the virtuous, is the virtuous. So, it's a tricky job they're trying to pull, pull off here, but, but for instance, the appeal to rationality is one, uh, appeal to moral sentiments would be another. I don't know if there's any other typical sort of uh, slider stops. Um, Social convention problem. No, but that's not, that's that's, not, that's that's not, not what I want. That's exactly all they don't want. Yeah. <laughs> Acceptability by society. No, exactly not that. See, I mean, it seems to me anybody who's grown up in a bad society is not going to be keen to say that morals is, is determined by the society uh, or by the convention or by the shared sentiments because they, they grew up in a society where, in fact, those were all absolutely awful. So they think, oh, no, it's got to be something else. It can't be that. And we hold up as heroes, people who opposed. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King, for example, who opposed this, the social attitudes of their time. So. Okay, one here. Um, I grew up um, thinking about um, utilitarianism and so on, and so this is where I come from. But it seems to me that uh, a lot of this is all, but as you said, very, very circular. But uh, if you've got to appeal to... Um, you know, what it is in society which makes morality. I mean, obviously, you can't have morality without society, really. It means other people. So what it is about other people, it's other people's well-being. Um, you talked about a dreadful society in the South. Well, because um, they didn't think about each person as individuals. They thought about some people better than others, which is mm. clearly mm. not a moral position. But you don't need to have virtues. I mean, a lot of the words about the, the, the virtues, like we heard about courage, well, courage is not circumstance. If you're, if you're courageous in a ridiculous situation, there's no value in it. If you're courageous, you go to save a child from drowning. You're doing something because you're benefiting other people, the child. And if we all behave in a way that um, we take into account other people, we don't have to call it what the, what you have to say, well, what would the virtuous person do? What is the virtue? It's a question of what an individual would do in the course of benefiting other people. I mean, it is a, a sort of a soppy um, type of utilitarianism that I can't define the, the right. I mean, there are a lot of arguments against them. 
um, the old versions of it, something about the well-being of other individuals in our society. If there's one man on an island, really, apart from the others, you know, if morality doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. Whether he's virtuous, not virtuous, what the person would do, what he shouldn't do. Obviously, he should clean his teeth. There's nothing to do with morality. Cleaning one's teeth or doing something in your own interest, there's nothing to do with morality. Looking after your body, looking after um, you know, your, yourself, that's actually um, a selfish attitude. It's not a really question. If it affects other people, it's, it's, so it seems to me that I don't know whether either of you really believe in virtue. I think I'd like you to say each of you. Do you believe it? We, we, yes. Okay, let's leave it. At, let's have you end on that, although it's going to be a bit generous. Do you believe it? Um, can I say why? I mean, yeah. yeah. So I think um, Brad agrees with this, actually. So, um, so imagine... Um, it goes back to the stuff about intention, I suppose. So imagine that, there were, that we've got the society with other people, and um, there's a certain degree of well-being. Um, and you might think what matters is that we have as much well-being as, as possible in a society. But suppose there are two societies like with the same amount of well-being, but in one case it's been created via maybe a series of accidents or something. Um, or you know, so I, I or I intend people in that society intend to harm others, but it all goes wrong and they end up helping them <laughs> through through accident. I think that's distorting. Well, but the, the, I mean, the, the thought is, I might I might try and do something bad to Brad, and I end up benefiting him, yeah. or I might in, um, intentionally do something good for Brad, but the end result is the same. Um, so in both cases, he ends up with exactly the same good. It seems that um, there's something much better about a world in which people are doing things with the right motives and the right intentions. And that's the bit that I'm not sure consequentialism can easily capture, even if the theories converge. Very nice. You? But I think you... <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> So, uh, just leaves us to thank two virtuous gentlemen, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>